um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a delight to see so many people here. And this is what we hope would happen with this seminar series, that a lot of us would be able to participate in a, in a re-thinking, a reassessment of what we understand by international, international development, comparative and global in the field of higher education studies. And let me say that, I mean, I realise some of you will be people who work on schools rather than higher education, and I think that this discussion is equally relevant by one remove uh, to larger questions about education because um, what we're really talking about here, I think, is the way we think about um, education across borders. You know, that if, And we hope that in the series what we'll do is we'll bring forward uh, different lenses that researchers and scholars use to think about cross-border relationships. Um, and, and in doing so, of course, different lenses whereby we think also about the national and the local, because those are never excluded entirely when we talk about the international, the comparative and the global. So, I mean, we could have, uh, have, have fashioned and framed this in many ways and had many different speakers. Um, we've chosen the, the particular speakers that we have uh, and, we'll work, and we'll run with that. But um, the first session today, I think, starts with a brief which is about the relationship between international education and development. And of course, the definition of international, the famous discussion which uh, Jane Knight kicked off with her definition of her evolving definition of internationalisation, might be one of the things that comes up. But I think the, the problem of development um, will be the central theme of, of, of much of the discussion. Now, the way we proceed is we have two speakers, and I'll introduce them in a moment. Um, our first speaker will speak for approximately 40 minutes. Then we'll have a period of um, short period whereby we get some discussion, some Q and A, some discussion, maybe up 10 minutes or so, and then we'll move to our second speaker. Um, and at the end of those two, we should have quite a bit of time then for open discussion. We'll start the discussion after the second speaker related to the second speaker's presentation, but we'll then move into a larger discussion. Let me just uh, remind you: this is one of four seminars. This is the first in the series. The second one takes place at Oxford in a week's time. David Mills and I will speak there. Um, the third one will come, we come back to here and um, we'll have uh, Ariane de Garion and, um, and Rachel Brooks. And then the final one, which will go back to Oxford again, will be all of the speakers that we can assemble. I think Rachel can't be with us for the final one. And, um, and that will compare and contrast the different approaches and I think we'll probably by then be talking about things that have arisen in the first three weeks and, and we'll see what we do with those. So I think the fourth one is fairly open, but we hope that from that we'll draw, draw some larger conclusions and, uh, and clarifications. Now, to go to our speakers today, well, it's, it's really nice to be able to introduce such good scholars. And Maya Cenk-Siliani is uh, Associate Professor of Comparative and International Education at the University of Oxford and carries much of the teaching in our uh, comparative... Um, an international education program. Her research on tertiary education, which is not just about, about, about higher education, but about vocational and technical, um, uh, for national development examines the societal and institutional forces that shape tertiary education and the potential of tertiary education and research for transforming societies. It's a great pleasure to work with Maya. Um, it's been one of the, my, my, my delights of the last 12 months. and. I learn a lot from uh, hearing her and, 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 and talking to her. Um, and equally, Tristan. Uh, Tristan McGowan has just published an important book. I mean, this is one which everyone needs to read. I've had a look at it myself just today. I've started to read it and engage with it. There's a lot of lot in here. Um, higher Education for and Beyond the Sustainable Development Goals. And this gives you... I think a sense not only of the development issue but also higher education itself and there's a lot of discussion of universities uh, and, and non-university education within its pages. So it covers the literature really, you know, really, really effectively. And um, Tristan, I think, is um, probably better known to you uh, than, than Mark because he's based here. Um, he's Professor of International Education at the IOE. Um, his work focuses on higher education and international development. He's got a strong emphasis on Latin America and on Sub-Saharan Africa, but he does work beyond those regions. Um, he says access, quality, innovation and impact, and there's a very interesting chapter on impact in here, uh, which I think says some substantially new things about impact, and it's one of the reasons why you should read the book. Uh, 
He's the author of not only of this book, but of Education as a Human Right um, at Bloomsbury. So both Mayor and Tristan are watching the UN uh, development goals. They're looking at issues about human rights that the UN declaration established for our, our, our common attention. They're working to the global conversation in terms of the global agencies as well as the particular national situations that they look at. So without delay, uh, over to Mayor. Thanks. Thank you very much, Simon. So higher education is a vibrant and growing field of studies in social sciences. And the literature in the field explains and explores teaching and learning practices within universities, as well as the role that higher education has played in shaping different societies and different socioeconomic and political realities, and the ways in which it has influenced the development of various societies globally. Higher education field also encompasses the literature that um, shows how we can think about the futures of different societies and the transformations that are possible but can be imagined. Higher education scholarship frequently frames the subject of its study as international, comparative, or global. And in this respect, overlaps with a sister field of studies, which is comparative and international <coughs> education. As a scholar working at the intersection of these two fields, higher education and international and comparative education, I realized that the following three spaces, international, comparative, and global, have not been clearly delineated in the scholarship. The purpose of this seminar series, as Simon also explained, is to bring perhaps slightly more coherence to our understanding of the field of age studies by examining the international, comparative, and global spaces or perhaps we may want to call these lenses of knowledge creation within the field of higher education studies. If you guys would like to move in, perhaps. Um, there, there is one chair here. of the international development space, international development space per se, within the field of higher education studies by providing a very broad overview of the knowledge created within this space based on the academic literature produced in English. Before I delve into this, I wanted to very briefly tell you what I think uh, the knowledge created within other spaces looks like. And I, here I have included the national space as well. The national space, I would argue, is occupied by studies examining national and local realities, policies and practices of higher education in high-income and high-middle-income economies, largely produced by local academics, without much reliance on the knowledge from other contexts. If you want some examples, you can imagine, for example, higher education participation literature, a lot of that literature in the US context, in the UK context, Australia context, scholars embedded within sy those systems writing about higher education participation, for example, in those contexts without much reliance elsewhere. So that would be my understanding of the national space within the field. The comparative space, I would argue, includes scholarly studies of higher education across different contexts, Again, mostly high-income or high-middle-income countries, for example, the countries of the OECD, countries of the European Union. Some examples of these studies would include the studies looking at the status competition or ranking of universities in different contexts. This space is occupied by the scholarship produced by academics embedded within well-functioning higher education systems mostly who study other similar systems for the explicit purpose of ensuring that their systems remain competitive. And this can be traced back to the origins of comparative education um, uh, in early 20th century and then of 19th century. And the global space is all about studying higher education as a global or regional relational system, the influence of globalization processes on the integration of various national systems, as well as the supranational policy and governance. So my colleagues in the next two weeks, as Simon mentioned, will be looking at the comparative and global spaces within the HE, within HE studies. The term international has been used to denote very many different things. It has been used to denote within higher education studies. 
It has been used to denote international, what we call international development. It has been used to denote internationalization of HE. It has been used as synonymous to globalization of HE in some studies. Now, uh, I take international with the meaning of international development. And I'm speaking in this talk, I'm talking today about the literature on higher education and international development. Or in other words, international development, higher education, okay? Now, globalization of higher education, I hope, will be addressed in the global, when we talk about the global space within HE studies. And as regards internationalization of higher education, um, I would argue that internationalization literature, which is a vibrant and growing field, uh, body of knowledge in our field, is at the intersection of three different spaces, global space, comparative, and international. And it will be great if we have an opportunity to discuss this further in the Q&A session. So internationalization of HE literature is not part of the international development HE as I'm addressing it today. Although there are little bits and pieces of literature like proliferation of MOOCs, online higher education, that can be part of international development HE literature because they are oriented on expanding access in low and middle income country contexts and oriented on what we call development. Now, the focus of today's seminar, so, is the international development space within HE studies. And this space, I argue, lies at the intersection of higher education and international development. The field of international development originated, as you are aware, in the post-World War II period, in the late 1940s, and the international development is a discursive product of that period. This is quite important, and we will get back to this at the very end of the talk. Starting from the mid-20th century, a series of ideas and institutions emerged in the Global North on how the Global North could bring more development to the Global South. Central among these ideas was the concept of economic development. Now, in a sister field of CIE, that was institutionalized in the mid-20th century, international development education is all about understanding educational improvement in a resource-poor context, or what we call low and low-middle income country contexts. Scholars working in international and comparative education have always focused on the applied practical purpose of international development education. Some of the little quotes here. Um, with the core assumption that the world can be made a better place by human effort. Now, who makes the world a better place? Um, when we ask this question, we need to look, although this is largely about the knowledge creation, we need to look at actors that are non-academic actors largely, okay, and who work in the field of international development and have a lot of influence on the knowledge creation. And in some ways, you would imagine that we want to have a lot of impact on the work of these organizations. So these organizations have very interesting um, networks and power within the field, okay? I, want to, I do not want to talk a lot about them. I just want to present two observations related to these organizations and their work in international development. So why one observation related to knowledge creation is that within while there exists ample scholarships, on most of these actors working in pre-16 education, there is very limited literature on the role of these organizations in higher education. One of the few exceptions is an important article by Riyad Shahajaha from Michigan State University on international organizations' epistemic tools of influence and the colonial geopolitics of knowledge production in HE policy. Shahajahan frames international organizations' HE initiatives within client countries as neo-colonial domination, suggesting that international organizations reproduce client dependencies, limit local knowledge making, and promulgate one-size-fits-all solutions based on Western knowledge and neoliberal ideology. So that was one point I wanted to make. Another point is that although boundaries are not always clear, because some of these organizations very often employ academics or employ individuals with PhDs, i.e. academic training, and individuals who publish in academic journals, these institutions normally consume a very small proportion of international development HE research. This is either intentional or this happens because there, there exist limited practices and structures of knowledge sharing between academics and these institutions. 
When these institutions are seeking expertise, such expertise frequently comes from consulting or research firms. In the future, I, I would argue academics will need to develop better links with these actors working in international development AG to improve the potential of impact of the knowledge created within our field. Now, to go back to this, by focusing on meliorism and normally following the assumptions that AG can support development, international development AG might have become one of the most normative spaces in the field of AG studies, and I think Tristan mentions this as well. In a foundational assumption of the scholarship within this space is that AG generates clear benefits for the society. Clear benefits is public good as well as private good. Now, there are various in, um, disciplinary frameworks that have been applied um, in, this, uh, in this space, international development space. Each of these disciplines, I might have missed something, and it will be great if you add that um, later on. So each of these, my students always add something when I present a list of disciplines. <laughs> so um, each of these disciplines uh, has its own traditions. And more importantly, has its own, brings its own geopolitics of knowledge creation within the space of international development agency. As noted by a Beninese philosopher, Pauline Haun-Tonji, and this pertains to a number of disciplines on this page, global peripheries serve as data mines for the growth of knowledge and the advancement of theory in the global north. This happened across social and natural sciences. Scholars have been paying increasing attention to the traditions of legitimation, the politics of knowledge creation, marginalized knowledge, southern theory, etc. Yet, this has not happened in all of these disciplines that are feeding into the space of international development AG. Now, this is an eclectic list, and the diversity makes it somewhat difficult to establish the identity of the space and to identify the limits of the method and data used in international development AG. Things become even more complex when we look at the methodological approaches used in the literature in this space. Uh, again, I might have missed some approaches, but will be, it will be great if you could contribute later and add some of the approaches that may be missing here. Considering the methodological and the disciplinary eclecticism, the next slide should not come as a surprise. These are the main publications where I have observed that the papers uh, examining the space, international development space within HE, have appeared. So uh, perhaps I could, could have classified them slightly better, but I, I will tell you that there are four main disciplines presented here. One is education, and there are three different subfields of education, well, two subfields and the rest here presented. So comparative and international education, higher education, and other education journals. There are journals, international development journals, where we encounter a number of um, studies published uh, referring to this space, human geography, environmental science journals, and economics journals. Now, besides um, the studies appearing in peer-reviewed journals, we have quite a number of important uh, monographs and edited volumes that look at this space. Now, on the, in the top row, I have monographs. In the bottom row, I have selected edited volumes that look at this space. And as you can see, if you look at the dates of the publication of um, these uh, books, you will see that most of them are published in the last 10 years or so. Okay? And the earliest one I have here is by Goff and Scott, Higher Education and Sustainable Development. This one that was published in 2008, and one of the latest ones is Tristan McCowan's book on higher education for and beyond uh, the sustainable development goals, as well as a very interesting recent edited volume, um, Gassin et al. on international scholarships in higher education. So this is a very good, just rough glimpse uh, on the publications in this field. Now getting to the main thematic areas and cross-cutting themes within this um, international development space. So when I was thinking how to present the main areas of um, the literature published in the field, I came up with this kind of classification. There are some other ways of doing this, and after we finish talking about 
literature in this space based on these areas, I can present you another perspective that one could have taken to look at the literature. So these are the key areas, and I will try to very briefly overview some of the key ideas that have emerged in this specific areas of scholarship. And then we will talk very briefly on the about the cross-cutting themes. So if these are the main areas, those are the cross-cutting themes that can be matched to each of these areas, okay? Now, on this slide, we have four specific areas of research, and I would argue that um, most of them are underpinned, most of the scholarship created in these uh, areas is underpinned by human capital theory. Um, actually, before I passed on here, I wanted to say a few more things about the areas in themselves. Um, I wanted to say that although specific papers, specific studies and books refer to are clearly delineating what they look at. There are several pieces of scholarship, very rare, but still, that look at multiple areas, okay? And that's quite important, I think, to note, as I will be using the knowledge from those pieces quite actively as I talk, speak about each of these separate areas. Um, one of them is an important systematic review produced by Moses Orkut, Tristan McCowan, and Rebecca Schindel five years ago that looks at high-quality studies within the international space um, uh, uh, of higher education and argues that higher education can support development um, in five specific domains in terms of earnings, productivity, technology transfer, capabilities, and institutions. And most of these contributions are linked to the educational mission of HE rather than um, the research mission or engagement mission. Another important work that looks cross-sectionally across these different areas is um, Alexander Bonis and Melanie Walker's book on universities and global human development that argues that university contributions to development can be explained through human development and the capability approach, focusing on the core areas such as the meaning of well-being, the idea of agency, participation in democratic citizenship, how to address inequalities, and the idea of equitable partnerships. And finally, the third one, Tristan's recent book that looks at higher education for and beyond SDGs, that uses examples from different um, contexts to provide a thorough conceptualization of the ways in which AG can contribute to the SDGs and covers quite a number of these areas. Now, here I need to mention that the Sustainable Development Goals that were adopted in 2015 expanded the focus of the international actors, international community, uh, many of whom were presented on, on the list of the actors that I showed to you, beyond the primary and secondary education to include higher education. And that was a very important uh, uh, event in the field of higher education studies. This was an important move because higher education used to be missing from the international development agenda if we look at the prior goals of EFA and NHS. Now I am allowed to pass on to the actual areas. So as I mentioned, these specific areas, thematic areas, are largely embedded within the human capital theory that assumes a direct and functional relationship between education and development as knowledgeable and skilled individuals improve their own economic standing and that of their society. This theory has been very powerful. It started from 1960s, 1970s. Um, and although a lot of authoritative critique has been published of the theory and the key assumptions underlying this theory, it still remains the most powerful theory, I would say, in international development. Uh, one of the key aspects, um, key, I would say, markers of how human capital theory entering the HE discourse was the publication of the Rates of Return Analysis by George Psokoropoulos in 1985. And this is probably the only quote that I put on the slides, so it's an important quote, I think. Based on this quote, lots of things changed, and based on the scholarship that followed this publication, um, to the extent that up until a few years ago, higher education was not a priority area for international development funding. Therefore, it was not a priority area that was promoted within national governments in low- and middle-income countries. So very little investment went to higher education in low- and middle-income countries in resource-poor contexts, starting from the discourse that started within the World Bank um, in the 80s. 
we can say. So therefore, this seems to be a very important publication in this field. Higher education was delinked from development up until, I would say, the mid-2000s, perhaps, when the literature started to argue that HE had a very strong potential for development. And there are a few studies that we can talk about in greater detail later that actually used new data on rates of, on rates of return analysis and showed that rates of return to higher education can actually be quite impressive. So most of this literature base, is based on the assumption that higher education can contribute to economic development, basically through externalities, through, through indigenous growth, and through increased productivity. Yet there are a few pieces of literature that would not, I think I put it here, Hanushek and Holmes and Mayhew, that argue that this link is not that clear or does not exist. Eric Hanushek argues that once consideration is made of cognitive skills, the variations in the amount of higher education have no discernible impact on economic growth in either developing or developed countries. My own colleagues, Craig um, Holmes and Ken Mayhew, argue that um, there is a stronger relationship between secondary education and economic growth than higher education and economic growth, and so on and so forth. So this literature is vibrant and still ongoing. A lot of has been written in this area. Um, one uh, of the pieces of the puzzle is also quality. So some authors argue that higher it's not only about the access and participation, but also the quality of our higher education in order for higher education to be able to contribute to development. Development as measured by economic growth. There is a specific area of literature on poverty alleviation, and in international development there is a lot of um, history on the struggle between measuring uh, growth based on GDP and measuring growth based on poverty alleviation. So that is an important piece of literature. That part of it argues that um, um, there is not the weak between international between higher education and <coughs> poverty alleviation is not that strong. And another part of it argues that there is a role that higher education can play in poverty alleviation in resource poor contexts. However, higher education is not well funded and it does not have sufficient capacity to do that. Now, graduate employability and um, higher education to work transitions is an important area of research. Most of the papers in this area are focused on skills mismatch, skills gaps, and alignment of higher education with labor markets requirements, more so in low-income and low-middle-income contexts than high-income contexts, interestingly, as if higher education seem to have kind of more responsibility in low and low middle income context than in high income context, which is quite paradoxical to me. So in the kind of sea of the literature focusing on skills gaps and alignment of higher education outcomes with labor market, there are a few studies that are slightly different. For example, Walker and Fongwa's book on universities, employability, and human development provides a critical analysis of graduate employability by linking it to capabilities and inequalities literature. The book moves beyond the conception of gaps and graduate skills and mismatches between employers and universities and instead provides an innovative, multidimensional, and intersectional human capabilities conceptualization of graduate employability. Um, and the final one on this slide is higher education and innovation. This literature examines the quality and quantity of higher education and learning that nation states need to be competitive, mostly in low and low middle income country contexts. However, there exists very little evidence based on this literature that higher education contributes to development in resource poor environments through research and innovation. And most of the studies in the field have been um, uh, part of the systematic overview by Oka Chetal, and that is the outcome of that overview. I wanted to kind of summarize this slide <coughs> by using an article by Stephanie Allies towards measuring an, uh, the economic development of higher education. That's the title of that article where Stephanie Allies interrogates the assumptions which underpin the current approaches to measuring impact in aging using the case study of South Africa. She argues that analysis of labor market relationships associated with forms of measurement linked to rates of return and employer requirements and satisfaction studies give us a snapshot of relatively contemporary data, data but do not tell much about the dynamics of causation. <coughs> 
They contain interesting information, but should not be used to overcrank <coughs> about the relationship between AGE and economy. Taken together with other approaches to AG evaluation, they tell us more about how labor markets are looking for distinctions between candidates than about the value that AG adds to societies and economies. Now, there is also an impressive um, array of studies that uh, looks at uh, the links between AG and good health and well-being and the AG and gender equality. Literature demonstrates that university education can provide a range of broader, measurable benefits to the graduates relating to well-being and gender equality, amongst other areas. And it's found to improve countries' position on human development and gender-based development indices. Normally, literature reports positive links between higher education or, and individual capabilities. Impact has been shown in areas of health, nutrition, and women's empowerment. Um, However, as shown again by a systematic review, the effect of HE is reportedly not always sufficient to overcome the barriers that exist in those societies for people to exercise those capabilities that they develop. Individuals with HE are likely to have higher um, reported well-being uh, rates, <coughs> rates of well-being, than those with lower levels of education. They are also significantly less likely to report psychosocial problems than those with lower levels of education. There exists a uh, very clear links between higher education and women's representation in public offices, for example, especially in low-income settings. Access to universities seem to enhance women's freedom through enhanced earning capacity, avoidance of restricted marriages, restricted marriages and enhanced choice of future life trajectory in relation to career, travel or studies. University education has also been linked to increasing the uh, empowering women to voice their concerns, to be more confident. Um, and participate more actively in family as well as public decision making and community affairs and to have more awareness of legal rights. Yet, the barriers that exist in some of these societies do not allow women to actually exercise um, all of those rights and capabilities. An important trend in international development space within HE studies is um, the, in the last few years has been the focus on H's contribution to sustainability from the environmental perspective. Sustainability in H scholarship examines experiences of universities from around the world regarding the integration of sustainability practices and concerns um, within their curriculum, their uh, administration <coughs> systems, including strategic planning. Uh, this scholarship also looks at the cases of institutional transformations to address sustainability agenda. There is a uh, specific journal where uh, scholars publish um, their studies uh, in this specific area, thematic area. The journal is called International Journal of Sustainability in HE. There is another kind of sub-theme within that theme that relates to teaching the SDGs or Education for Sustainable uh, Development, ESD. There is quite a lot of new literature emerging in that area that examines the interrogation of the topic of sustainable development in the curriculum of universities to change attitudes, social norms, and behavior to natural environment. And finally, uh, another sub-theme is um, sustainability si science and how science can help us achieve more sustainable futures. The final theme probably my favorite theme. <laughs> um, sadly, it does not have that much scholarship within it. That theme looks at um, higher education and political culture, democratization, peaceful and just societies, and good governance. This is a very broad category that I could have broken down into specific themes, but sadly, because of the lack of literature in this area, that, was not, that did not sound quite uh, viable. Um, now, there are different categories here. On the one hand, there are studies that look at improved institutions. A small number of studies see a positive impact of HE on strengthening institutions, both formal organizations as well as social norms. And impact is uh, seen in the areas of governance, public services, and the environment. When it comes to peaceful and just societies, um, there are studies that show that if adequately supported universities, for example, in conflict-affected areas, 
can play a crucial role in empowering individuals and communities by um, providing the advanced capabilities necessary for societies to assume genuine ownership of the recovery process. Um, some of the examples of political culture democratization literature show that the potential of the university to act as a training ground for democratic citizenship is best realized by supporting students' exercise of democratic leadership, leadership on campus. This in turn develops and fosters democratic leadership in civil society, encouraging and perhaps facilitating student leadership in various forms of on-campus uh, political activity and in some ways in a range of student organizations, emerges as one of the most promising ways in which universities in low and low mi middle income countries, especially in African contexts where the studies come from, act as training grounds for democratic citizenship. Right, so that was a brief overview of the main themes. Now, if we look at the cross-cutting themes, in order for those, the, those main areas, the literature, whatever is argued by the literature in those main areas, quite optimistic in most cases, uh, in order for all of that to actually be realized, <laughs> um, I think there are several important conditions that need to be in place. And those conditions, I think, that need to be in place in order for our positive and optimistic vision coming from the other parts of the literature to be realized are probably included in some of these studies and the broader literature that may not be on the board here um, within these cross-cutting themes. So I will not dwell on the HE funding again. HE funding literature is really immense. But this is all about aid flows to higher education sectors in low and low middle income countries, as well as financial allocations and uh, spending within low income country contexts. Um, as I mentioned, this uh, HE was delinked from development for quite some time. The situation is becoming slightly better lately, and there is more money going into HE in uh, resource poor contexts. Um, there are lots of new aid uh, providers outside the uh, OECD uh, DAC list, new aid providers like Brazil, China, India, Mexico, Qatar, and there is emergent literature in the field related to those new donors. Mm, very interesting part of this literature is, I think, scholarships, because there has been a lot <coughs> of money going into scholarships, even in those times when the funding for HE was quite limited. So if you look at some different databases online that showed that where the funding has been going from the mm -hmm. World Bank, from Asian Development Bank, etc., etc., you see that a lot of uh, proportion of the HE funding has been going to scholarships, right? So there is an emergent body of literature nowadays, and um, as we're preparing a special issue on this topic, we have encountered a few pieces, new pieces even, that look at how uh, individuals who obtain those scholarships can come back and, for example, contribute to their societies. Um, capacity building literature very often is quite technical, related based on several project evaluations, I assume. Um, however, there are also interesting studies that are slightly more critical, for example, Adrian Sen, that is included here, on how capacity building projects affect knowledge <coughs> creation and how they sometimes may create very asymmetrical power relations in developing country contexts. When it comes to access and quality of higher education, these bodies of literature are quite large, I would say. Very briefly, access to higher education literature demonstrates the existence of gender, geography, income, social class, race, ethnicity, inequalities, confirming that expansion of HE has not been accompanied, has not made HE access more equitable. Very brief one-sentence summary of the literature. And when it comes to quality of HE, I have established three specific kind of lines in, in the argument. So one is um, quality versus quantity argument, okay? Um, that quantitative expansion has not been accompanied by qualitative improvement. Another area within this section is alignment of uh, graduate outcomes with labor market requirements and how important it is to have relevant HE, relevant as defined by meeting lab immediate labor market requirements, okay? And the third area, how to improve HE quality by uh, introducing different quality assurance mechanisms, basically.
quite technical literature there as well. Now, the last two ones are quite interesting, I suppose. Uh, the last two relate to Asian knowledge production, knowledge legitimation, decolonization, uh, politics of knowledge, and Asian decolonizing, humanizing pedagogies. The scholarship in the last two cross-cutting themes introduces post-colonialism, the ideas of resistance and transformation within Asia. The expanding scholarship on colonialism and post-colonialism today acknowledges that for many countries in, the, in what we call the Global South, Asia came as a colonial experience, downgrading the indigenous knowledge, local languages, and cultural practices. Considering the central role of universities in social reproduction and in the creation and legitimation of knowledge, decolonization and its place in HE is a subject, from what I understand, of increasing interest. Even if I look at my students, all of them want to do something related to decolonization. Now, as explained by Stein and Andreotti, I think, so all of these uh, references are at the end of the presentation. So all of them are listed so you can refer to them later. So, um, uh, Andreotti, yes, uh, Stein and Andreotti are here. So as explained by Stein and Andreotti, decolonization is broadly understood as an umbrella term for diverse efforts to resist the distinct but intertwined processes of colonization and racialization, to enact transformation and to create and keep alive the modes of knowing, being, and relating that these processes seek to eradicate. So this is quite a nice summary of the literature that is uh, produced in this specific area uh, that looks at the discourses of development, empowerment, transformation, and democracy, okay? uh, as well as power and the politics of knowledge. And the final cross-cutting theme is on and decolonizing, humanizing pedagogies. This is also a growing field of literature. Uh, quite interesting literature, um, I think. And um, I wanted to bring one example to give you a flavor of this literature. Um, uh, Savo Haleta, Haleta from South Africa explains how since the end of the oppressive and ra racist apartheid system, epistemologies and knowledge systems at most South African universities have not considerably changed. They remain rooted in colonial, apartheid, and Western worldviews and epistemological traditions. The curriculum remains largely Eurocentric and continues to reinforce white and Western dominance and privilege. Um, and he writes how South African institutions need to tackle and dismantle the epistemic violence and hegemony of Eurocentrism, completely rethink, reframe, and reconstruct the curriculum and place of South Africa, Southern Africa, and Africa at the center of teaching, learning, and research. I quote lots of South African research because this is one of those few countries where there is a lot of, from the global south, and we call it uh, from low and middle income country context, well, it's probably not that low income anymore, um, that there is vibrant scholarship that is produced, high quality scholarship um, in this country. Now, this is an alternative. I will not go very deeply into that. I hope Tristan will <laughs> um, talk about some of these things too. So this is an alternative approach that I could have taken, I think, in order to talk about the scholarship produced in this field. Mm, I am currently writing an article using this kind of framing. Uh, so we can talk about the entire scholarship as adopting different kind of development orthodoxies to explain the link between higher education and international development. Mostly essentialist um, orthodoxies, including human capital and modernization theories, and we talked a bit on the, about those, or adopting non-essentialist orthodoxies based, based on the assumptions or explicitly adopting the frameworks of human cap capital, human, capability, human capabilities, human rights, or liberation approaches, okay? So this is an, uh, another approach, I suppose, of framing the field. But one thing that I need to say is that although the links between higher education and development can be imagined in very different ways, most of the scholarship still builds on the assumptions of the essentialist approaches between <coughs> approaches to understanding the links between higher education and international development. I have post-development and I have two more slides left, so soon finishing. <laughs> so, one question and then the final slide about post-development. So, the question is, has the international development lens become obsolete? Now, at the start of the talk, I defined the international space within AG studies as the space where higher education 
intersects with international development. The entire talk has attempted to give you a glimpse of how international development lens has been used in our AG studies. Now, as I'm approaching the talk, I would like to pose this question. As you remember at the start, I mentioned that international development as such is a discursive product of, of the post-World War II period. The concepts of third world, of underdevelopment, did not exist before that period. If you read the work of Arturo Escobar, for example, he explains in great language all of, the, all of that uh, stuff and all of these assumptions. International development rests on the modernist assumptions, on the essentialist approaches to knowledge creation, about the inevitability of progress, objectivity of knowledge, the existence of expert knowledge, and the existence of hierarchy of knowledges, <coughs> disciplines, and evidences, and the linearity of development. Besides being underpinned by strong assumptions of modernism, the concept international development itself is neocolonial, underpinned by uneven power relations and the epistemological legacy of post-colonial period. International development literature has promoted de dependency upon and the supremacy of the Western knowledge and expertise. International development is all about the development in the national contexts that are not our national contexts. As I mentioned at the start, uh, that is the national space where we write our, about our national context without much reliance on the comparative knowledge. So international development literature is all about us going elsewhere and studying contexts that are not our own context, and very often that, um, that, that has a global north, global south divide. In this respect, international development is all about the development of the other treating the patient, I would say, using sense language, rather than developing oneself, developing one's own agency and capacity. Considering the modernist assumptions and the colonial nature, international development cannot escape ethnocentrism, viewing other cultures from the perspective of our own culture, the belief in the superiority of our own culture. Now, knowledge is a product of time. These assumptions constrain the broader use of the international development lens to allow for the realization of non-essentialist approaches that I presented here. Non-essentialist approaches to development. And therefore, these assumptions make, I would argue, the lens somewhat obsolete for knowledge creation. Now, if we strip international development of the modernist, neocolonial, ethnocentric assumptions, we would be left with the idea of development that has equivalence in many languages and means broadly change, growth, or improvement. Development encompasses, can encompass, this concept itself, can encompass different um, subnational, local, national, regional, global spaces, and it may be entirely devoid of the understanding of international, as I have explained all the assumptions that underlie international development. It can also, development as such, can also refer to various domains like economic, social, educational, artistic, agricultural, environmental, and so on and so forth. In other words, development can be multidimensional, and what I want to propose, glonacal. It can be global, national, and local bringing together various domains and various spaces. These are three distinct but interconnected spaces, local, national, and global, that deserve, I think, to be treated as distinct. And moving the field forwards, perhaps thinking about development as embedded within these three distinct spaces and delinking development from international will allow us to become less bound by nation-state borders and more conscious of the local nuance and the global connectedness. So local nuance and the global connectedness. Gonacal development would be a more inclusive concept and, the sub the, and can substitute international development, I would argue, by neither rejecting the idea of development altogether, nor entirely focusing on the discursive problematization of development without suggesting any alternative. I could not finish the talk without talking about post-foundationalist approaches. So the approaches that I presented here, if we remove this, are all foundationalist approaches, okay? And we can talk why and how later. So post-foundationalist approaches um, 
are quite important because there is a lot of literature, lot of kind of, lot of attention paid recently to the post-development paradigm and post-development universities in Tristan's book for the first time. It has never been mentioned before from what I have observed. The conversations, post-financialist conversations and post-development conversations are not new themselves. They started in the 1980s, 1990s, and some of the key scholars were Gustavo Esteva, Wolfgang Sachs, Arturo Escobar, and others. Post-development is opposed to universalizing a certain model of society and engages critically with the logic of development that assumes the belief in progress, modernization, economic growth, etc., etc. Post-development rejects all assumptions underlying development paradigm. And it turns to alternatives, alternatives to the existing models of development, politics, the economy, and knowledge. Two examples how post-development has been used within higher education studies would be Buenbibir and Ubuntu. And this is a drawing inspired from Buenbibir. This mural is by famous Brigadera Monapara, a political street art collective in Chile. Buen vivir, which means good living, is one alternative to the idea of development, focusing on harmonious coexistence and living with nature in accordance with principles of reciprocity, complementarity, solidarity, and relationality. Living in harmony, non-violence, rejecting the idea of indefinite economic growth, encouraging inward contemplation, encouraging living in the world, but not of it. The idea of Buen Bibir is aligned with other post-developmental philosophies. One of them would be uh, Ubuntu, which focuses on interconnectedness, belonging to a greater whole, valuing ecological health of the community as well of the individual, emphasizing principles of empathy, sharing, and cooperation in our efforts to resolve our problems as a community. And in a recent book by Tristan McCowan, we encountered the concept of post-developmental university with two primary characteristics the institutionalization and supporting ecology of knowledges. Uh, the model, I think, builds on and goes beyond um, what uh, has been proposed earlier by the ideas from, uh, that we read uh, in the works of Paulo Freire and Buenaventura de Santos. Yet, within the international space of higher education literature, post-development paradigm remains to be marginal. Post-development is also very far from achieving an agenda-setting role within transnational and global forces controlling what we refer to as international development sector. I expect the future scholarship to build on the plurality of views that exists within the space of international development regime and to move into two directions. A foundationalist direction, perhaps, of reframing international into global, national, and local developments, and a post-foundationalist direction of post-development. And one characteristic that brings these two directions together is a focus on the local dimension. Thank you.